we all need a system for growth and improvement. Too many people are just going at it alone. You know, jujitsu is a great example. You can learn some things if you go do it with a buddy and you never watch any yeah. YouTube videos, you never go any formal instruction, you never go to class. It's just you and your buddy and Matt's in the garage. You'll eventually learn some things, but you're never going to be able to catch up with a person who goes to structured classes, watches competitions, trains in competitions. That guy's always going to be ahead of you because he's putting in focused effort with a proven system that works. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Rising Father podcast. I'm Chris Rodak. I have Ryan Mickler. He's the founder of Order of Man. I'm honored and blessed to have him on here with us to talk about all things business, fatherhood, masculinity, hunting, everything. Welcome, Ryan. Hey, what's going on, brother? Hey, before we get started, I actually have to close my door. I can hear the vacuum going out there and it will try to come <laughs> No problem, here, so man. Let me close Go for it. Do it. Otherwise, we will get interrupted. So That happens. All right. Anyways, good to see you, man. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, no worries. All right. So I've been, you know, I feel like the last many posts you've had have been just been these epic photos of like a fully stocked fridge of meat and you going <laughs> on these hunting trips with your son. And that's, that's something that I've always wanted to get into. Like I'm 36, my son's about to turn 10 and I just see us doing these kind of things together, but no one in my family has ever hunted. None of my friends hunt. And it's like something that in the future I want to get into, but I got to learn so much about it. Like how, first off, can, what did, what was your last hunting trip you just did? Did you take your son? Where'd you go? Can you tell me a little bit yeah. about it? Yeah. The last hunting trip uh, was a muzzleloader hunt in Minnesota with a good friend of mine, Matt Schmigdahl. Uh, we, we were out there uh, about a month ago, a month and a half ago hunting with some buddies. And then I went back this last weekend for a muzzleloader hunt with my oldest, who's 15. Uh, and I didn't have any tags. He had two tags, a doe and a buck tag. Uh, yeah. We didn't see any shooter bucks, but we did end up, he ended up shooting a doe and that was exciting and cool. And, you know, he's killed other animals before, but never with a muzzleloader. In fact, before this hunt, he'd never even shot a muzzleloader at all. Neither had I. So for him to go out there and uh, not really know too much about what we're doing, but get it done is pretty exciting. How long were you out there? Uh, I think we were gone for, we hunted for three days. So it was a, it was a fairly quick hunt, um, basically there long weekend and, and right back to, to work and school for him. I've seen you t take your son on a lot of these trips. When did, when did, I guess first, when did you start hunting? Was this something you've done since you were a kid or is it something you took up as an adult? Yeah, I, I, I haven't been hunting for that long, only about seven, eight years. Uh, and I grew up a lot like you. I didn't have family members that hunted. I did, I had some yeah. friends that hunted, but I never went, went with them. Um, and then I had a friend of mine and he wasn't really, he was more of an acquaintance at the time, but he called me up and his name's Colin Cottrell. And he said, Hey, would you like to go on, on a hunt? And I said, why well, I, I don't hunt. He said, that's why I want to take you. I want to take you on your first hunt. And nice. it's, it's a rifle hunt and a bow hunt co combo. And we'll take two deer each. And I said, uh, well, I don't have a bow or a rifle. He's like, well, go buy one. Okay. So I did, I went out and bought a rifle and a bow and I had thought about wanting to hunt. I just didn't know to your mm -hmm. point earlier about really how to get into it. Like, how do you get started? What do you do? So fortunately, yeah. uh, he's an avid hunter. He's been hunting for a very long time. Uh, had a great little property, a lease on a property in Texas, took me down there. Uh, and I was able to shoot my first deer with, with a rifle first. And then a couple of days later, ended up shooting another buck with my bow. So I was Amazing. hooked immediately. 
Yeah, and we've been everywhere now from shooting pigs into Texas and, and whitetail down there to whitetail in Minnesota to some really cool spot and stock uh, hunts here in Utah, uh, a couple of elk hunts. Uh, I've hunted Hawaii for the past six years, axis deer, pigs, turkey, uh, goats, sheep, all on Hawaii. So we've been pretty fortunate to be able to get on some really cool hunts with some great people. So you're all in on hunting now. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a passion, you know, it's, 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 I, I don't know if I would say it's a lifestyle. Cause I, I don't think that does justice to guys like Cam Haynes or John Dudley, whose literal yeah. world revolves around hunting. Mine doesn't, but it's a big integral part of my life, my own self-development journey. Um, also just an mm -hmm. outlet for me to have that's, that's mine, you know, for me, uh, where, where mm -hmm. I can be out in, in the wild and I can, observe these animals and I can put food on the table. It's, it's a really good, healthy outlet for me as, as a man. You've been hunting with your son. When did you start introducing your son to this? I would say a couple of years after. So I've been hunting for seven, seven, eight years now. And so I think a couple of years mm -hmm. after, uh, he was probably 10 or 11. Um, so he's been hunting for four or five years. Uh, sounds like you have a son who's 10. Is that right? Yeah. He's turning 10 in January. Yeah. So this is a good age, I think, especially if he's been around firearms. Um, I don't know if you guys are going to rifle or bow hunt, but he has a kid's cross or a kid's compound bow. And I've got mm -hmm. a recurve bow. There's, we just, you know, like a hobby thing. We've got a, a range right by us that we go to, but yeah. we haven't taken it to that next level of the more legit gear. Yeah. I mean, well, it's legit gear. I mean, there's guys who go out with a traditional bow, like you're talking about your recurve who, and that's a hard hunt. Cause you have to get closer. Um, it's not, yeah. you know, mechanically aligned and all the sights and everything like you'd have with my compound bow. But these guys, a friend of mine, uh, Brandon Lilly, I mean, he'll go out and he kills, he kills deer with his, with his traditional bow. And that's not something I've ever that's done, amazing. but it's pretty impressive. Yeah. I mean, how close do you have to get with that? Like 30 yards or something? I would, I don't really know. So don't quote me, but yeah, I would say sub 30. I, I can't see it happening much further out than that just because mm -hmm. of the draw weight and, and the yardage and distance with a compound bow, it's got all the, the gears and the cams, which increase your draw weight. So you're able to pull it back and fire the arrow at a faster rate than you would with a traditional bow, like you're talking about. Yeah. So with your son, you said you, he was, you started a couple of years after you. So he's been doing four or five years. What, what are the great parts of bringing your son on a hunting trip? Hmm, man, like where to begin? We get a lot of hours in the field or in a box blind sitting there. Maybe it's talking. Maybe it's not even, most of the time it's not even talking because we're trying to be quiet, but it's just sitting there and being present with one another, um, helping him manage his emotions because hunting is an emotional thing. You know, I, even to this day, and I'm sure guys who love to hunt can attest to this. When, when a big buck walks in front of you, Mm -hmm. my adrenaline starts pumping and I'll, I will literally shiver almost like I'm cold, but it's just the adrenaline pumping and it, and it changes physiologically, uh, the, the, the way that you, you behave. And so, you know, making that shot on a big buck like that, when your adrenaline's pumping and, and going crazy, you've got to manage that. Um, you've got to, you've got to train and, and be ready. Cause you don't want to make a bad shot. I made a bad shot on a really nice buck this year and wounded him. Fortunately, it wasn't a fatal wound. And, uh, the, the guys that I hunt with said they saw the deer and he looks, you know, fine and healthy. They saw him three or four days later. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. I didn't, I didn't kill the deer and couldn't find it. Uh, 
But yeah, there's just a lot of patience that comes with it. There's so many different life lessons that I can help walk my son through these experiences in real time. Because you can talk with your children about patience and training and making an ethical shot and why hunting is a necessity in the circle of life. And you could talk about all of those things. But until you're actually out there doing it and mirroring it and letting him or her see how you're behaving in those circumstances, they're just not going to get it. So having these real world environments, I think, speeds up the learning time and makes it mm -hmm. last a little bit longer. Yeah, I mean, they could be he could be playing video games or he could be out there on a hunt with you in the woods trying to kill an animal and have that life and death situation right in front of them. Like how, yeah. how deep and amazing and, and like just raw an experience. Right? It's something that should be sacred. I think a little bit as well, uh, because you're taking the life mm -hmm. of an animal. So, yeah. you know, you ha it, like it's, it's important. It's an important part of our life and it's an important part of, you know, 99% of people on this planet's lives to eat meat. Uh, but most people aren't connected to their food sources, so they just eat their steak and don't really know where it came from. Uh, but my my sons, my two oldest sons, they've killed animals, and they know that when we sit down and have that meal, it's because they took the life of an animal. And so there should yeah. be some reverence associated with that, and and it's reverence. But for also us, it's 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 spiritual as well. You know, we're we're thanking God for allowing us to have access to these animals that provide for our life and these memories and experiences together. So it's a, it's a very spiritual experience as well. Um, mixed in of course, with reverence and temporal, you know, worldly type lessons I'm trying to teach them. Mm. When he killed it, when um, your sons killed their first deer or whatever animal it was, was that a difficult time for them? Did that, was that a huge learning opportunity and you had to talk them through that or was it, did it go pretty seamlessly? No, it went pretty seamlessly. I was telling you my oldest son, his first big game animal outside of like fishing and things like that yeah, uh, was that deer in Pennsylvania. And yeah, yeah, that's right. We were on a three-day hunt and we really hadn't seen much. And it was our last sit. And he said, dad, I want to sit in this food plot. He had his eye on this food plot mm -hmm. and I want to sit in this stand. He had his eye on this stand that he wanted to sit in. I said, well, that's a single stand. So you can do that, but you're going to be up there by yourself for three mm -hmm. hours, it's cold, it gets dark, and you can't come down and you can't make any noise. You don't have a phone. So you want to do that? He's like, yeah, I can do it. I said, okay, head on up. And so he went up and my, my second son and I actually went down to the other end of the food plot and sat, sat in a ground blind. And we're just hanging out, just, just chilling, doing our thing. And it gets close to shooting light and, or, or darkness, I should say. And we hear a shot. And both of us look at each other like we're excited. And maybe 15, 20 seconds later, we hear another shot. We're like, what is going on out there? So we wait for a minute, maybe 15, 20, 30 minutes. And we get out and we walk up to the tree stand. And he's like, big buck down. He's all excited. Oh, I'm like, all right, well, be quiet. Come, there's other hunters around here. Like, be quiet. Come down. So he came down and, and I said, tell me what happened. He's like, well, I shot this deer and it was it was wounded, but it was like, on all fours, like crawling. So I shot it again. I'm like, did you kill it? He's like, yeah, I killed it. I said, awesome. Well, put another, put another round in the chamber. And he's like, no dad, it's dead. I'm like, okay, mm. maybe, but still put another round in the chamber just in case he runs or we get up to him and he's not fully dead. He's like, okay. So we walk about 30 yards and he's like, there it is dad. I'm like, no, that's a rock. He's like, oh yeah. So we walk another 10 yards. There it is. I'm like, no, that's a rock. He's like, oh yeah. 
I'm like, are you sure you shot it and killed this thing? He's like, yeah, I know. I saw it. It's like, all right. So we walk another 10 yards and sure there it was balled up and dead. Mm-hmm. And he was so excited. So excited. Again, I taught him the reverence of it. You know, we're not going to gloat. We can celebrate and be happy, but we're not going to gloat. We're not going to do disrespectful things to the, to the, to the deer. Like we're, that's not something we're going to do and what we're about. So, mm-hmm. and he wasn't trying to do that anyways. I just wanted to make sure he understood how this process worked. And we said a quick little silent prayer and, um, you know, loaded the deer up and got out of there. Uh, my second son, uh, his first larger game animal was a pig. It was a pig hunt in Texas earlier this year. And he shot, he made two beautiful shots on two pigs wanted about 70 or 80 yards, another one about 120 yards, uh, and just made some great shots. Pigs died immediately. One died on impact. The other one ran 30 yards and died. But yeah, neither of them had a hard time, maybe because they'd heard me talking about it so often, uh, and they had me there to walk them through the process. But I I don't think they were challenged with it. I think they were excited about it, but also recognized the reverence that we we have when it comes to taking an animal's life. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I could see that being an issue with my my son. Like my my son's turning ten in January. I want to take him first off. I need to learn how to hunt, and then once I do that, I can take him. So maybe he might be eleven or twelve when I take him. But he's very. He does jujitsu. He does CrossFit. He's a strong, crazy kid. But he also is very empathetic and emotional. We went camping um, a couple months ago, and there was it was like a hunting camp, but they have really nice cabins. So we went, and there was these local archery hunters who were just slamming bucks like every every it felt like every five hours they were bringing another buck down they had a big stand and they would gut it in front of all of us so we i just sent the kids out onto the hillside i said go watch this because they've never seen anything like this before so i said go sit go sit on the hillside with your friend and just watch them skin the deer and take the organs out and everything they were just entranced by it and loved it and my son was i was like hey man you want to do that someday when you're older you want to go hunting and he was like yeah but he's like i don't want to hurt the deer so like that, you know, and that's like a very basic thing, but I, I know there's going to be that resistance to it. And there's going to be talks that have to be had and the, the rationalization of taking him through that needs to be. Because when he eats his chicken nuggets and his chicken, he's not thinking, well, this came from, you know, a factory and a chicken and all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Um, but I just know that that will be a massive point in his life, getting him from eating chicken nuggets, saying, I don't want to hurt an animal, to be able to actually hunt and kill a deer which is a process I'm willing to take him through. Like I want to to do that with him, but I just know that there'll be a lot of important lessons that need to be had on that journey. Well, and I, and I don't want to hurt animals either. I mean, that's one misconception that a lot of non hunters have about hunters that were these, these, you know, ruthless redneck, you know, murderers that just go out there and slaughter all these animals. And I don't, I don't know. I've never been exposed or been around somebody who didn't have that level of reverence when they take an animal's life. Everybody I've ever hunted mm-hmm. with has a baseline level of respect for the fact that we're out there. But the other thing that's important to know is that hunters are the greatest conservationists. You know, you have all these yeah. bleeding hearts who, who cry and complain about the world of hunting, who have never immersed themselves, never learned, never taken any time whatsoever to figure out if this is actually beneficial to the ecosystem or not. It is but they don't do any research and they just cry about how horrible this is because they see the pictures on Instagram or X or whatever it might be. Uh, but hunters are, are actually have a vested interest in the ecosystem. They have a vested interest in making sure that deer populations are where they need to be. Prime example, uh, this friend I was telling you about that I hunt with in Minnesota last year, they had a really rough winter. 
and it killed off a large percentage of the deer population. Well, him and his father, I could see the worry in their eyes because they can see that it's probably going to take three to five mm -hmm. years to build the herd back up to what it was before this really rough winter. These are guys who have a vested interest in making sure that they're planting the right crops, that the environment is what is healthy for these deer populations, that they have the deer population they need, that they're managing it correctly. They're not taking too many does or bucks, but taking out their correct percentages. We're paying money and fees to uh, different de department of natural resources. So our money is now where our mouth is. Hunters are the greatest conservationists. And I would be worried that if we didn't have hunting, that we would see uh, far worse problems with the ecosystem, with the flora, the fauna, the, the animals, and, and just the environment in general. Yeah, it's kind of it reminds me of being at the gym. And whenever you first start going to the weight room, and you're not in shape yet, you're still a small guy, you see these giant ripped guys, and you're very intimidated, you're like, man, I'm just, these guys must be assholes. Like these guys must be so mean. And then you actually start to know these guys and they're the nicest guys in the entire gym. Like they will help you with anything. They will show you how to do the, the workouts. They'll, they'll take you by the hand. And that, that's been my experience too, going to the gyms. Like the, the guys who you're the most intimidated by, like, no, it's just a story you're playing in your head. They're not, they're not like that. Like they, you just need to go out. That's, that's your own issue you're dealing with. And the same thing with hunters. It's, you have this narrative in your head, of while well, they're doing it for this reason they don't care maybe you think that you're a better person somehow but it's just your own it's your own shit you're dealing with whenever you have those stories and you get to know them it's like a very different um storyline all over I, I was watching um meat eater i think by steve ranella you know that awesome show on netflix and if yeah, you watch just one episode times. of him Oh, he's he's amazing. I, I you know talk about a dream life. You look at what he's doing, and like you just listen to that guy talk just for thirty minutes. You just can see into his soul. Like what a great guy. He's doing it for the right reasons. You know, there's so much more to his hunting journey than just killing something. But you have to spend a little, like you said, to spend a little bit of time in it. Actually, get to know. And too many of us are ignorant. I, and I'm not just pointing fingers at other people. There's things I talk about that I'm ignorant about, and so we ought to do a better yeah. job making sure that we get the information we need to make informed decisions. So you're into jujitsu, right? I am. Yeah. You still practicing? Uh, it's been a little less frequent than it has in the past, but I do still train. Do your kids do jujitsu at all? Um, my kids did when I was in Maine. Uh, my oldest got into powerlifting and football, uh, but I yeah, do need, I'd like to get my youngest two back in my daughter and my youngest son back into jujitsu because they actually really enjoy it. Yeah. And I'm just, I want to relate this to what you were talking about managing emotions. Cause you were talking about your son and hunting with him for the first time and just having that experience of having to manage your emotions when like a giant buck comes and how that can relate to just jujitsu. How, how long have you been doing it? Mm, about four years now. Yeah. I'm about, I'm about the same, like three and a half. Um, and I do, I can, I go about two or three times a week for me, it's just the best way for me to get some stress out, for me to stay in shape, and for me to work on managing my emotions. Because whenever I've got some giant, like we have this new guy just joined our gym. He's huge. He's super strong. He's a he was a D one wrestler, and he's like, I want to start mm -hmm. jujitsu, and he's just kicking the shit out of everybody. So of you got this guy on top of your chest, like choking the hell out of you. And the only thing you're trying to worry about is like surviving 
and staying calm, not freaking out, not feeling like you're getting suffocated. So for me personally, it's a great lesson on managing my emotions. Like what has been your experience with, with jujitsu, not like the physical growth, but maybe some mental emotional changes. Like, have you felt any of that kind of relate to hunting at all? The same kind of lessons? Yeah. I mean, I, I think you're right with managing your emotions, I think is crucial. Um, I also think recognizing when you're getting yourself into bad positions and you see that ahead of time, because most of the time, especially when you start all of a sudden, you've got a big guy whose arms is, are wrapped around your neck and, and you're choking. Yeah. Uh, but once you start training a little bit more, you start to be aware of how did I get myself into this position? <laughs> and, yeah. and then the key becomes not escaping, but how do I keep myself from being exposed to a potential submission or injury? So there, mm -hmm. there's that. Um, the other side is just critical thinking that, that is huge in jujitsu. You know, you might be in a certain position, you might have an advantage and all of a sudden you get reversed or swept because you weren't thinking about what's next or what threats could potentially come your way. But this is life, right? Threats are going to happen. Things are going to come up. You've got to be 5, 10, 15 moves ahead in order to beat the competition, in order to uh, do whatever it is that you have a desire to do. I think jujitsu helps you do it because it's going to help you stay calm, manage your emotions, think about scenarios and situations, play those out in your head before you start acting and then see that a series of simple steps, and that's really all jujitsu is, it's simple steps will produce a predictable outcome. You know, when you look, yeah. at, a, when you look at a black belt, for example, I, Kip Sorensen, he's my co-host on the Ask Me Anything and a good friend, he's a black belt. He's been training for, I think, 11, 12, 13 years, somewhere in there. And uh, he will purposely you know, expose himself or, yeah. uh, purposely go for one attempt so that I'll respond so he can get me into something else. He's just thinking further ahead than me because he has yeah. the exposure to it. So that's what we need to do in life is recognize where we're stepping. If it's going to move us toward the, towards the right path or move us further from where we want to be. But those are all lessons you can learn on the mat. Absolutely. I mean, there's a guy, I think two nights ago, um, he's, uh, just like one month in white belt and he was going into it with a perfectionist attitude. And I can understand because I had that once when I was starting too. So, you know, whenever you're rolling with someone, you're only supposed to tap if, you know, basically you're in so much pain or about to pass out. Right. And I was rolling with him. I was about to get him ahead an arm triangle and he was on, he was underneath. He was starting to feel the pressure. And before we got, I got close and he wasn't in danger. He tapped. And he said, well, I can't get out of here. So I'm going to, I got to quit. So I was like, man, that's not how it works, man. I was like, you gotta, you have to try to survive in that situation. So we started again, exact same thing happened, except this was just neon belly. And he said, now nah, I'm not getting out of here. So I had to coach him through the situation as I was there. I said, man, listen, there are times whenever I'm rolling with some guy and it's just three, four minutes, I'm on the bottom. He's sweating on my face and I'm just failing for three, four minutes straight. And I just need to survive. Like I have to learn how to just survive in that pain. So that's what you need to do right now. Because if you skip over this lesson, like you are never going to learn how to just survive. So we yeah. finally did it a third time. And I got him another head and arm triangle. And I, he was starting to get red and flustered. And he said, I said to me, I said, dude, just, just chill. Just relax. Only tap when you feel like you're going to pass out. I'm not going to kill you. So he, was, he started to get shaking a little bit. He wasn't in pain, but he was red and he was getting flustered. And I squeezed and finally he tapped. I said, good job. And then afterward he said, 
He's like, usually when he's like, when things, when I don't know the outcome, I just, I usually quit. Like he just opened up to me. I was like, I get it, man. I get it. I was like, but here in jujitsu, I was like, you need to allow yourself to just fail. I was like, because otherwise you're missing the, the most important moments. And I shared this with, with some of my guys. I was like, this is such an amazing parallel that jiu-jitsu, jiu-jitsu can provide. Like just laying on the bottom, failing, suffering, in pain, just figuring out how to survive like your black belt friend was doing, putting himself in a position. But you have to be able to live there. Like or else you just miss some of these just amazing lessons. Like that's something that only can happen with, I think that happens with jujitsu that can teach so many guys these things. Also, just being able to protect yourself. Like, there's a lot of guys who could just use some brute force. Like I feel like there's a lot of guys who just need to get the, I don't know, the shit kicked out of them a little bit to learn how to survive. <laughs> yeah, some some levels of uh, of humility there as well that, you know, uh, you, you can pride yourself on being big and strong, but you're going to run across somebody who's not as big, who's not as strong, but can still toss you around like a rag doll in the jujitsu mats. So recognizing that there's all, there's always room for growth and improvement, regardless of where you are on the hierarchy of athleticism or any other facet of life. So in terms of what else guys need, I mean, you obviously work with tons of guys and you're changing thousands of men's lives with your, with your program. What are some of the things that like right now, you're noticing is really a red flag in guys that you're seeing or something that maybe guys just need help with that you are discovering with your work with men. Like if there was one thing that's showing up very common, that guy after guy is experiencing that's holding them back. What do you think that'd be? Generally, I would say there's two things that I, that I explain to men and that I've really lacked in my life for a lot of years. And I struggled because of it. And that's those two things are number one, a network and number two, a framework. If you have a network of other highly motivated, ambitious, driven men who are willing to be held accountable and are willing to hold you accountable to goals and objectives and things that you want to do, um, maybe even just be a sounding board occasionally, or, you know, I've got friends I had a good conversation with a friend not too long ago about some issues that he's got in his own marriage. Uh, and and I, don't, I don't have any solutions for him, but man, he needed to get some things off his chest. And he's got a guy that he can go, go to and turn to and talk about these issues and just kind of work through some of the issues that I w- went through in my own marriage. Uh, so, so having that, that network is crucial. And then the framework is a system. Right? We all need a system for growth and improvement. Too many people are just going at it alone. You know, jujitsu is a great example. You can learn some things if you go do it with a buddy and you never watch any yeah. YouTube videos, you never go any formal instruction, you never go to class. It's just you and your buddy and Matt's in the garage. You'll eventually learn some things, but you're never going to be able to catch up with a person who goes to structured classes, watches competitions, trains in competitions. That guy's always going to be ahead of you because he's putting in focused effort with a proven system that works. If you go to the gym and you just show up, it's getting to be close to the end of the year. Everybody's thinking about what they're going to do in the beginning of the year. If you just go to the gym and show up, like you're going to get stronger for sure. But you also might get injured because you're doing dumb things that you shouldn't be doing. If, however, you hire a coach or you pull up a training or fitness program online and, and you work through that system, then we know that this is going to produce these type of results. 
And if that's what you want, then you got to tap into a system, a framework that's going to help produce that desired result. Don't ever wing life. Sometimes it's just a matter of going like, yeah, just send it. Right. But for the most, most part, even in work, I see guys do this. I struggled in my financial planning practice years and years ago when I had the business, when I started and I was floundering, flopping around. I was losing sales. I wasn't making any money. I was getting so frustrated. I was so close to quitting, but I didn't really have anything else lined up. So I'm like, I got to make this work. What, what can I do? And there was this guy in the office that I worked at and he was, he was amazing. He was always closing new business. He had plenty of clients. Clients were calling him. He was always on appointments. He was making phone calls. He was wheeling and dealing. I'm like, man, I don't, I don't know what that guy's doing, but he seems to have it figured out. So I approached him and I said, Hey, I'm struggling here, man. Like, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Can, can I just take you to lunch? So like, yeah, sure. So we went to lunch and we ended up working together. He would come on uh, cases with me. He'd come to clients with me and we ended up splitting the business 50, 50. If we closed business, he got 50% of it and I got 50% of it. At first I was a little taken back. I'm like, Oh man, I got to give up this 50% of my commission to this guy. Well, mm -hmm. Yeah. 50 of whatever we made is better than a hundred of nothing, which is what I was doing. So I started splitting business with this guy and gradually over months and in, in, in a year or so, um, I needed him less and was able to start closing business myself and, you know, ended up growing a very successful financial planning firm. I actually went on to start my own business, but I had, it wasn't until I had a framework and a network. It was him and his systems that I actually started to see results in my life. So if you're floundering in one area, whether it's money or relationships or fitness or nutrition or fill in the blank with whatever you're struggling with, find a framework, find a network, and having those two things in place will drastically improve your results exponentially and very quickly. So I feel like a lot of guys know that to be true, but they still don't do it. Like they still... Like they'll hear you talk, they'll know you offer a program, they'll know that that can improve their life, but they still won't pull the trigger. Like, what is like, and this is the thing that matters, I feel like, because we all know what to do. Some of us, a lot of guys know what Most to do. Us. They know they should go to the gym, they know they, what to eat, you know, they know they should save their money and invest and hire, but, but still, there's something that keeps them stuck. Like, what do you think that is? Like, what do you think guys are telling themselves, whether it's excuse or rationalization or story that keeps them still? Uh, it's fear. You know, it, it's fear of the unknown. It's fear of the uncertainty. It's fear of looking foolish. That's a big one. A lot of guys will listen to this mm -hmm. podcast and they'll be thinking about training jujitsu, but they never go because they don't want to look dumb. Well, you have to be willing to look yeah. dumb. If you want to be good at something, you have to be willing to be bad at it first. And so when, when I really started to get onto my fitness journey, which is at this point was probably 10, 11 years ago or so, I was 50 pounds overweight. And I remember sitting in a parade and there was a new CrossFit gym opening up and somebody that worked there, one of the owners brought by and handed me a flyer. I'm like, yeah, I should probably do this. And so that was on a Saturday. And on Monday, I was at that gym. Uh, he took pictures because it was they were opening it. There, he was taking pictures for Facebook and that sort of thing. And I still have the picture. He took a picture of me standing there waiting to do pull ups or something. And I see that picture and just can't believe what that guy looked like. Isn't but that's that not me now. Yeah, but that's not me now. But I had to be willing to go there. And I thought people were going to make fun of me or look at me stupid or you know the fact that I pro at that point couldn't do a pull up. Like, come on, you know that's 
so it was very hard to go in there and do that. Jiu-jitsu was the same way. I didn't want to get beat up physically. I did not want to get beat up, literally. But you got to get beat up. When I've started businesses, the things that cross my mind is like, oh, what if this fails? What if it's dumb? What if people you know, don't mm. like it? What if they say things about me? There's all sorts of fear of the uncertainty and the, and the doubt that creeps in. And what I would say to anybody like that is it doesn't take any level of competence to do something new. And there is no prerequisite to trying something. Most people think there is like, mm, I want to try jujitsu. Let me study for it. No, there's no prerequisite to trying it. I'll have guys all the time. I'll say, Oh, Ryan, I'm going to go to my first jujitsu class. What, what should I know? Dude, just show up. Stop it. Nothing. You don't need to know, what you need to know is where and when that's it. You're going to show up and the instructor is going to help you. If he's a good instructor, he's going to help you work through what you need to know. Don't stop overthinking it. Just go do it. The only prerequisite, and I'll say there is one, so there's an exception to this. There is one prerequisite to doing something. And all it is, is courage. It's just having the courage. It's being afraid of whatever you're afraid of. And we all are. So acknowledging that fear and doing it anyways, that's it. It's just courage. And the beautiful thing about courage is it just, it's a decision. That's all it is. I'm going to be courageous today. I'm going to get up and go to the gym. I'm going to sign up for jujitsu class. I'm going to ask that woman I've had my eye on on a date. I'm going to ask for promotion. I'm going to start the business, you know, all, whatever it is. It's just a decision that you make. Yeah. I feel like speaking of the word feel like we, we think that we need to feel a certain way to be courageous. You know, like I can be courageous if I get myself into this state, which was then I will do something. But it's kind of like what you're saying is like, no, you just have to decide to do the courageous thing, whether you're feeling like it or not, or if you're unconfident, just decide to act confident and maybe that that will align with what you actually want. I don't even think, I mean, I, I wouldn't even say you have to act confident. Yeah, You know, there's the fake it till you make it thing, which I think there's some validity to that. But if you're waiting mm -hmm. to be confident, again, you're just placing another barrier. Like you, What makes you think you should be confident about going to jujitsu for the first time? You have no right to be confident about that. And if you're thinking, oh, I'll just be confident, that's another barrier. Just acknowledge that you're, you're going to suck and it's not going to go well, <laughs> and but you're going to do it. And there is, you said, you don't have to feel anything. I think in order to be courageous, you do have to be experiencing one feeling, and that is fear. You have to be mm. afraid. Because if you weren't afraid, there wouldn't be, courage wouldn't be necessary. You're, all the things that you're doing in your life, let's say you're, mm. uh, you're overeating, you're eating like a slob. You're not afraid of, of that. Otherwise, you know, there's no courage required for that. It's the path of least resistance. So in order for you to be courageous, there has to be fear and you have to be experiencing it. So when you're feeling fear, as long as it's something that isn't going to kill you, uh, maybe that's an indicator or an opportunity for you to exhibit a little bit of courage and build that muscle. That's so hard because so many of the things that we do are to avoid that feeling of doubt and fear, but to actually grow and make progress, we have to just accept that fear is part of it and just survive in the fear anyway, like just become the guy who's adaptable and can pivot and still survive while he's experiencing fear. It's very hard to do. I don't, 
I'm, I'm careful of saying that it's hard to do just again. I don't, I don't words matter the way we think about things matter. Um, I, I think if we start saying that to ourselves, it, like it's not hard. We talked about it. Everybody knows what to do. It's just, it's not hard. It might be challenging to identify what you're really feeling or experiencing, but actually taking the step. I mean, everybody can make a phone call today that they need to make. Everybody can have that discussion. Everybody can sign up for that class. You can go ahead and start your business through one of these online uh, business entity type things. Like it's not, it's not hard. You just have to make the decision and go for it and stop overthinking it. Yeah, no, I think I agree with that in terms of um, like the steps required are not difficult. I, I think maybe what I'm saying is from an emotional point, if you're someone who consistently lives their life in, in avoidance of fearful things, to finally not do that for the first time will be difficult for you. Like yeah. it'll be to get and over that emotional hurdle to finally step into fear. Like you're, you've been looking at the jujitsu Academy for five years straight, driving past it. And then that first day we're like, all right, this guy's going to try to break my arm. Like it's going to be a little, it's going to be an intense experience for you. Yeah. I think, I think that's true. You know? So again, it's just, it's just making that decision to go and, and do it. And then your value system has to change as well. That's something a lot of people don't talk about. So your value, your current value system for somebody who might be struggling to take action is safe. They value safety. They value yeah. comfort. And they, we know that's a value because that's how they're operating their lives, even if it's subconscious. So you need to change your value system. Do you value safety and comfort? Or do you value courageousness, trying new things, experimentation? Because if you, if you value those things more than you value comfort and safety, you're, you're naturally going to do those things that push you outside of your comfort zone. And the challenging thing with this, to your point, is that somebody who's avoiding these types of things, the only way to overcome that is to actually do the thing that you've been avoiding your entire life, potentially. And that's a scary proposition, especially because you've made it out into this monster that it really isn't. Our minds are very powerful and have a way of creating mountains out of molehills. And you'll realize when you go do the thing, what was I worried about for all these years? It's way worse in your head. What's the quote? We suffer more in, in imagination than we do in reality, something like that. And that's entirely true. Yeah. There's a guy I was talking to who was putting off this business task, starting a business for months. I mean, if it was four or five months and he was just procrastinating and he was just continually avoiding it, finding busy tasks to do, to take up time so he didn't have to do this one thing. And I was talking to him. He said, yeah, I, I finally did that thing and I got done in 15 minutes. He said, no, it's just <laughs> not an issue. I said, yeah, exactly. Five months went by and you created this little thing into this giant. Back to jujitsu, like I feel like the guys who come in and do the best in terms of their attitude and perspective on life are the guys who are just extremely humble, like ask help from everyone and you know or just the they accept that they are this the little pawns they're the students who are open to help from anyone like they completely drop the ego but they show up every single day the guys who come in with a huge ego because they're ripped or they're big or something and they're not dominating from day one they're the ones who are gone after a month because they're not just crushing it like they are at other stuff but it's the guy who's like, yes, I admit that I suck at this. And 
they're just they stick around you know they show up every single class they get better and better every single class a little bit more and then two three years later they're still sticking around um but now they're the ones teaching people it's it's just so easy to get in our own way and like it's the mental game it's perspective that we have to battle to actually make progress in these things yeah yeah i agree um coachability is a huge factor i i I do coach my kids sports teams and i'll take a coachable kid over an athletic kid all day long hell yeah but if you can find both somebody who's super athletic and they're coachable game over that kid's gonna be an all-star i mean i know plenty of talented kids who you know that are just not coachable they're so arrogant um they think they know it all they think they know how good they are and so they don't train or practice or play the way they are capable of playing. So yeah, I think coachability, that's one thing when, when other coaches say that about my kids, like, Hey, you know, I really love your son or your daughter. They're willing to learn. They're eager to learn. They're coachable. That to me is the greatest compliment I could receive as a father is that I have coachable children. Cause I know it's that skill that's going to help them succeed in life above. I think just about any other skill, maybe consistency, I think would rank pretty high up there as well, but that coachability is huge. Uh, I started coaching my son's basketball team for the first time ever. Um, I was kind of roped into it, but I'm glad I did. They they just didn't have any coaches. And I played basketball. I'm no expert or anything. But I said, yeah, I'll do, I said, I'll do it. So I started coaching it, and it, I experienced the exact same thing. I was setting up my team, and, like, I want to do it again next year now, but now the people I select is going to be very different from my team. It's kind of like a roster whenever you choose – because there are kids who are like, uh, yes, Mr. Rodak. Yes, Coach Chris. What do you want me to do? And you could, you can, as soon as you say something to them, like they're ready, they're ready. Yeah. And then I got this one kid who, you know, these are fourth graders. They can barely shoot a layup. They can barely hit a foul shot. But he insists on shooting threes. <laughs> and, mm. you know, and, and like trying to do like the LeBron James moves he sees on TV. And I kindly, because I was a teacher for a decade, like I, I, try to coach him and teach him how to like, Hey man, let's, let's try something else. Like let's pass to the open guy. Let's, let's try to get closer to the hoop and do a couple of these things, but will not listen. Like is so set in his way that I'm like, me, I'll, I'll, and he's skill wise better than the other kids, but he also has zero points because mm. he's insisting on doing it his way and not doing that. So 1000%, yeah. yeah, the coachable kids I'll take every single time. No doubt. Um, I found with my, we're zero and four, by the way, <laughs> but that's okay. It's okay. Um, we'll we'll try to win this next game. Yeah. <laughs> At that age, it's like whoever has a whoever has a kid that can shoot layups, they're they're going to dominate the league. Yeah, usually um, what it is. But what I, what I found is that like my son has been on a bunch of these teams that have just dominated over the years because he has a couple of those kids who are amazing. But now that he's finally losing, it's actually been the best thing ever for him. Because he's, you know, he's lost every single game. Now he's trying harder than ever every single game. Now he's he's getting passionate. But also, back to what you were talking about earlier, he has all these new emotions that he's never had before. Where he's like, oh, my God, we might, like, lose every single game. What are we going to do? Like, the one game he was – him this, this other kid was crying. So he saw his, his friend crying. So, like, he started to tear up. And I was like, thank you. I was like, this is an amazing lesson I get to teach right here. <laughs> because, yeah, you, you are going to fail. You're going to fail in life. And we can't just – continually go through and just dominate everything, which is why jujitsu is great, which is why hunting's great, all these things. So I guess my question for you would be in with your children, how 
I mean, do you try to put them in situations where not where they could fail, but whenever failure does occur, how do you talk them through that? Because with fathers, there's there's just kind of two perspectives. There's I don't I never want my kid to see me fail. And we want to just crush everything, dominate everything, which is good. I want my kids to see me be successful. But also, they also have to learn how to fail because they're going to fail. And I'm going to fail. So I also don't want them to think that they have to be perfectionists. So have you in the past talked your kids through a failing moment? Or if you did, how did you do that? Oh, I mean, I look, I went through this past year and a half, just my struggles with alcohol abuse and, and the destruction and demise of the, of the marriage and how that impacted that. I've been very open with my kids about how that took place. I'm open with them now about what they're experiencing. I used to be a little bit more hard, I think, in the way that I would approach it. Um, and, and now I'm a little bit softer in that, a little bit more empathetic to what they might be experiencing. And then just having conversations without having solutions. Um, I, I think a lot of the times we as fathers think that we need to have the solution for our kids. And I don't really know that that's the case. I think they'll gonna, they're going to draw their own conclusions based on the experience that you guide and walk them through. Um, my kids are, are pretty self-aware. Um, they're intelligent. And so I can sit down with my children and ask how they feel about that. Why do they feel that way? What can be done about it? What are you going to do about it? Like these aren't my problems. They're their problems to deal with. And I need to help them understand that they're their problems to deal with and then help them with the soft and hard skills to be able to deal with those, those situations on their own. So I'm open about when business doesn't go well. Um, I'm open about when I go on a hunt and it's not successful and what I'm going to do next time to, to figure it out. Uh, case in point, uh, I made a bad shot. I told you earlier uh, on, on a, a really nice buck earlier in the year. And I was telling my son about it and I bought a tripod. There's a tripod in our backyard right now because I'm practicing out there and he sees me. He knows I made a bad shot. He knows why I bought the tripod. He sees me working to improve. And then hopefully next year it comes together and he can see that that is the result of having a bad experience, doing something about it, and then getting your butt back in the field. So yeah, we're very open about that. Um, and I do try to expose them to difficult situations, sports primarily, um, it, it is, is our outlet, uh, or it might just be going on a hike. It's usually physical in nature, but going on a mm -hmm. hike and letting them feel uncomfortable for a little bit, and then just teaching them things that they can do to keep going and soldier on. So yeah, I think it's crucial that we do that as fathers. I mean, I, I think that is our job as fathers, probably more so than mothers. I'm not saying they shouldn't, but I think primarily that's going to fall in the duty of, of fatherhood. Have you found these lessons taking place within your son's powerlifting? Yeah, the beauty of his powerlifting is I don't coach him. So he's not powerlifting anymore. He, when we moved back to Utah, he, he stopped doing that because he got into football and now he's doing strength training with the football season being, being over. Mm. Uh, but the beauty of powerlifting is I didn't coach him in powerlifting because I'm, I'm not capable of doing that. Like He needed a, a coach who was a powerlifter and, and would give him proper instruction. So the beauty of that is that Sean Morris, his coach is a great man. He's very capable. He knows exactly what he's doing and he loves those boys like they're his own. That's a, that's a great thing for a young man because he's learning lessons from other men. It doesn't have to be directly from me. I either need to create the environment or provide the opportunity for the environment as his, as his father. And I remember he would tell me, oh, well, you know, Sean coach can do this coach can do that. Coach can lift this. I'm like, oh, shut up. Like, I'm so sick of hearing about the coach. <laughs> but 
on the other side, I was like, you know what? I'm glad that he looks up to him. I'm glad that that coach is capable. I'm glad that he, that my son has somebody in his life who cares about him the way that he does and is helping him succeed in that level. And so uh, coach Moore ended up getting him to qualify for national powerlifting uh, earlier this year in South Carolina, which he competed in. Uh, but that, that, that's the, that's the advantage of that is that I didn't coach him. He had another great man in his life coaching him. Yeah. I'm all about that. I just want my son to have strong, great guys that he can look up to. I don't care who it is, like whether it's me or he goes to CrossFit and like these CrossFit, the guy who owns his CrossFit gym is just an animal, like three times the size of me, just ripped huge, can like God squat like 500 pounds, just this crazy, just massive guy. And Nathan knows that. He knows that, you know, dad, look, coach Steve is, you can't squat that much. I'm like, yeah, you're right. I can't, man. It's fine. But yeah. I'm also happy that I'm at least in shape and taking care of myself. He's, but he sees me doing jujitsu, sees me trying. And I don't care. Like if he watches TV, if he watches YouTube, any of these kind of things, he's not going to see these kind of guys. So for me, it's, I need to put him into situations where he sees strong, masculine, like leader, leaderly like men that are other than me. Like I'm going to be the most prominent guy in his life, but I also want to see that from other men as well. So I'll take it from anyone, whether it's CrossFit coach, jujitsu, there's tons of those guys or anyone. It doesn't matter to me. Yeah. Same. It's I I've often said is I don't need to do it all. I just need to ensure that it gets done. Yeah. I love that. So whether that's business or family, I don't need to teach my children every lesson that I could possibly yeah. teach them. How could I do that? But I do need to ensure that they have maximum opportunity to these lessons and experiences, which some fall outside of the realm of my capability. So I bring somebody in to help. Absolutely. No, that's a great, that's a great statement. I don't need to do it all. I just need to make sure it gets done. And, that, and for business, it's huge as well. Oh, for sure. So many guys are in a hamster wheel working 18 hours a day and just need to need to delegate a little bit or automate. Yeah. Yeah. It's massive. Well, I mean, I, I, want, I don't want to take advantage of your time. So I appreciate this very much. Um, we're at about an hour here. So I really appreciate your conversation and insight and wisdom. And I think that this will help a lot of guys in my community. So thank you so much for being on. I hope so, man. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Honored you uh, reached out and honored we can make this work. Thanks for having me on. You bet. Um, where would you like guys to go to, to see what you're working on? Uh, orderofman.com is our headquarters. We've also got our brotherhood, the iron council, which is orderofman.com slash iron council. Again, that's if you're looking for a framework or, or a network. Um, and then yeah, podcasting, you know, check out the order of man podcast. You're listening to one right now. So if you like podcasts, that might be another one to add to your, to your library of, of subscribe podcasts. Awesome. Thanks so much, Ryan. Thank you, brother. Appreciate it.